we get there and it had been raining all that. We drove all night. Um, and it, it was like a torrential rain the whole way. I mean, it was just the worst. I kept, uh, what's it called? Fishtailing and, and hydroplaning and that sort of thing. And I was like bound to determine to get to Pennsylvania. Yeah. And, the, and the thing about the sale is that I've heard that they open the doors at 7 a.m. for 30 minutes for people to walk around and not buy anything. And then they all shove them back outside until 8. And then at 8, they know what they're going to buy and they sprint in. Wow. Just everything they can grab because this guy is like i don't know how old he is he's late 70s or 80 or early 80s i don't know exactly how old he is but uh he's just a, a sort of a world famous wood fire potter very respected I guess. Where, where in pennsylvania is this no idea okay uh, but you but you got, got there, there. <laughs> yeah and, <laughs> Hey everybody, this is the Connor and Macklin podcast, or the Macklin and Connor podcast, depending on who you talk to. I just wanted to give a few notes before you dive in. This is episode one. This, the topic is coffee mugs slash ceramics. Macklin was really the expert here between the two of us on this topic, so the format ended up being more interview. We didn't really decide beforehand what format we would want to use. And we don't know what the future episodes will look like. Sometimes we'll have guests on. Sometimes it will be just the two of us. Sometimes it will be more roundtable discussion. Sometimes, like this episode, it will be more of an interview format. We're just letting this thing kind of grow organically. In either case, you can expect uh, unscripted, free-flow conversation in these episodes. And every episode will have a different topic. Now, at the end of this episode, the conversation started to shift to martial arts and the value of tradition and art, as opposed to always starting from ground zero in the creative process. Now, those are both huge topics, and they, they fit together really nicely, um, especially since we were starting with a very traditional art in the first place. I think we both kind of agreed on the fly that we wanted to talk about it further in another episode the whole bird's eye view of art thing. So if that part at the end of our discussion seemed to end rather abruptly, that's why we will come to it later in another episode. All right, without further ado, the Connor and Macklin podcast. So I thought a cool way to start this might be to just look at a coffee mug and talk about what we see that's different. All right. Um, so I googled coffee mug. First one that comes up is, well, the first unsponsored one that comes up, 61 cents. Next one is $130. $131 is not a bad price to pay. Yeah. All right, discountmugs.com. Here we go. It's just a basic white coffee mug. Like, it's the most stereotypical coffee mug you can imagine. So it's like a cylinder shape. Uh... The handle doesn't curve up. It's just kind of Smacked on the there. same shape. It's right in the middle. Yeah, it's all white. Thin handle, uh, thin rim it looks like. Yeah. Probably doesn't weigh much. Looks like a Goodwill special. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I got. All right. What well, do you see? Well, um, 
I mean, we're looking at the same thing, but uh, <clears throat> I'm trying to think of of like whether. Well, first of all, is that is that a mug that you would buy for sixty one cents? For sixty one cents, sure. <laughs> Not for one hundred thirty dollars. Well, right, right. <laughs> um, so. <clears throat> It depends on on what I'm going to use it for because to me, um, you know, whenever you're using a mug, you're it's the only time that you are are touching a a piece of uh, ceramic or or using a tool in two different places at once. You're using it on your hand to hold it, and then you're using it with your mouth hmm. to drink out of it. And so, like, that's you're kind of whether you know it or not, you're having to commit to you know, whatever it is that you're drinking out of. And so if you're just going to drink, you know, water or whatever out of a mug, then, then you know, a regular mug is just is fine. It does the job. Um, so, you know, that mug would be fine. I would buy it for 61 cents. Um, I just wouldn't use it to drink certain drinks out of. So... Like like coffee. Yeah, coffee in particular. So coffee is what, like a 20-minute experience at least? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can drink coffee uh, like two different ways. You can drink coffee with the intention of making it an experience that you enjoy, um, which the mug will be part of that, or you can drink coffee just to give you energy. Um and that and that has its purpose as well, but um, and so drinking coffee out of you know a, a regular mug in order to have experience to, in order to experience the coffee is not going to be something I I take a mug like that for. What's what's wrong with it? Um, yeah. well, they make them by the ten thousands. <laughs> so well, we can't have that. <laughs> I mean, there's there's no life in it. Um. Okay. So, you know... Because that, it wasn't handmade? Um, well, I'm trying to think if there are any... Uh, if there's any any rules that... Or if there's any exceptions to the rule that needs to be handmade. I'm trying to think if there... I guess it, you know, it can be mass-produced. That I know that, you know, my, my brother has a, a mug that's very special to him that was, you know, f- bought in a, at a gift store at the... Um, Kennedy Space Center. So like there's a memory attached yeah, to it. And there's, yeah, there's so there's like a sentimental sentimental value attached to it. Even I know there's even there's a professional ceramicist in town that his favorite mug is also mass produced. It was given to him. It says best dad ever. It's given to him by his daughter on Father's Day or something like that. So he loves okay. that mug. All right. So I guess it doesn't have to be handmade. Um but uh and then even if it is handmade it still doesn't mean it's good so i've got plenty of really bad handmade mugs at house and i wouldn't choose them to drink coffee out of so if you were to make it would you make it this shape or would it be a different shape if i were to make a mug uh if you were to make just a basic as as basic of a mug as you could possibly make. Yeah. I imagine that is... That's about as easy as That's like gets. the form of coffee mug. Yeah, yeah. So would you do anything differently than that if, if you weren't trying best. to add any character okay. to it? Okay. 
Um, I made some mugs recently where they were wider at the bottom than they were at the top, so they were a little more stable. Okay. <clears throat> but a cylinder is pretty much just a stable. Okay. Um, I would never put a handle on like that. Um, you don't like the handle? No, the handle's not good. Uh, and so, it's, so what I'm seeing is with the handle, it's just a basic, just oval shape. It's, you, it's just as even on the bottom as the top. Right, that's so, the problem. You want it to be higher, at, bigger at the top? Yeah, well, you want it to be, you want it to, almost all, well, first of all, the, the problem with a lot of mass-produced mugs is the handle is too thin. If it's too thin, it's uncomfortable. On, and, most, and nobody knows it's uncomfortable, but it's uncomfortable. Okay. And, um, and what's a comfortable handle is one that feels natural in your hand, like like you're just holding another uh you know, you're, it's part of your hand, it's part of your arm. Um, and when you're holding a mug like that, you have to brace it with like your either your third or your fourth finger because it's so so small and it and it uh, and it's so thin like that. So you really have to try hard to brace it. And sometimes you even have to put one of your fingers up against the the, the form of the mug to 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 keep it upright. <clears throat> and that's all. That's just a people have got i mean no one knows what a good handle looks like anymore so i mean that that doesn't even count as a handle i would I, in fact i probably <laughs> wouldn't even use that handle i just wrap my fingers around the mug just hold the mug yeah. itself yeah okay so i mean uh even you see those ones down there a little bit where the where the mug kind of looks like an ear like one down this one here yeah yeah see it says that, that's, uh that's, all i need is caffeine yeah See, that's, that's great. So, no, the handle, the handle, you know, it has a little more character. And, you know, it swoops up at the top. Uh-huh. And it kind of, see how it leads your eye upwards? Okay. Well, that's not even a good mug handle because that, because you got it, that third finger down at the bottom is going to be either jammed up next to the coffee mug and it's going to get too hot. And it's just not a good way to, um, to... You know, drink coffee and whatnot because wait, what's going to get too hot? There's the whole handle. No, the the finger the, at the bottom where oh, like, okay, where it has that little uh, the bottom connection there. So your bottom finger is going to be closer to the mug than everything yeah, else. It might even be touching it. Yeah. All right. So here, let's just look at this. Any of these? I've just googled coffee mug. Are any of these handles? Keep going. Meet your standard. Keep going. No, and you see see that one up at the top right, the green one. That that style that style handles is coming into style. It's just like a half circle, uh-huh. uh huh. And that's even worse than the one we were looking at before. It's, yeah, the other one was more of like an oval. Yeah, IKEA started that crap, and they're and everybody's doing it. And it looks not. I mean, it has a, it fits the form of that mug, but it just is super uncomfortable. It looks cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that one in the middle there, where the where the top is sort of straighter across. Yeah, that one. That's a better handle because your finger has something to rest on that top, but it's still too thin. You mentioned one that looks like an ear earlier. This is kind of like an elf ear. Yeah. It's kind of, it's just straight out and then it curves. Yeah. So that would be a little better. I'd, I'd drink more, I'd, I'd be more comfortable drinking out of that handle. But a handle, a handle has got to uh, be wider at the top. And then it's supposed to narrow a little bit and then it's supposed to get fatter again. Oh, so it's not just shape, it's the thickness. Yeah, like the width. Okay. 
and thickness too. Wow. There's a guy named Simon Levin. He's a ceramicist that I actually saw uh, here at Union um, a, a couple weeks ago, and he talked for like two hours on handles and how it's taken him a while to figure out how to make a good handle. So he he was interesting. What about this one here? This looks like a smaller mug, just overall. The mm -hmm. handle's really small. It looks like it would only fit a couple one, of the fingers. Yeah, one finger. Looks like it gets a little thicker towards the mug itself. Yeah, yeah that. See those. Uh, my wife likes um, small handled mugs for small, like uh, diner diner mugs. Almost like a teacup. Almost. Yeah, teacup. Yeah. yeah, that's the better word for it. Um, and teacups are different from coffee mugs. I drink out of a. Whenever I drink tea, I drink out of a small, really small cup, really cu small mug, and it only fits one of my, and it's mass-produced. Um, what's I like that one. Okay, so what's the difference then between the coffee experience and the tea experience? <laughs> um, tea, to me, tastes like dirty water. Um, <laughs> but, okay. So I think other people would think differently. Um, I don't know. I mean... Um, when I, I just don't I don't have the same experience with tea. It doesn't taste as rich to me. Um, usually, and it may because I'm, like, making it wrong, but whenever I make, if I try to make my tea too rich, it just gets bitter instead of better. And so um, I, I'll, I just like coffee a lot better. Um, and I'm having a, a good mug is definitely part of that. I only have, I've got, like, you've seen my shelf. I've got, like, 25 mm -hmm. mugs. But I only use two of them. Yeah. Because um, only two of them are good enough. So. Well, here's the thing for me. I didn't grow up drinking coffee. Maybe maybe tea a little bit, but not that much. Um, all through college, I wasn't a coffee drinker. Yeah. Um, almost two years into marriage, not a coffee drinker. But I'm wanting to start getting into it because I've been looking at a lot of the health benefits, and I'm really interested. So yeah. I've been emailing people. I've been reading more about it. Oh my gosh. So this is this is this is fascinating to me. Um, so you're you're way more into this field than I've ever been. So right. Well, the mug and the coffee are two different things. I actually just got a like if I'm um so I actually just bought a Yeti. Have you seen that thing? The Yeti thing that I got? I guess not. It's uh it's just like yeah um it's like a little coffee mug for, uh, you know, made from Yeti. So it's like super insulated. And normally, you know, I, I like hand mug, handmade mugs much more yeah. than it seems. For a while, I was like against getting it. But the more that I've drunk, the more that I've drank coffee, the more I've really um, enjoyed the, the way it tastes and the experience that I have with just the flavor of the coffee. Yeah. And um, the problem with a handmade mug just like I guess a regular mug would have the same issue is they're not insulated, so you lose the temperature quickly. So, like, I'll be sitting there, and after, especially when you pour over, because when you do a pour over, which is how I make my coffee, your your temperature is automatically going to be less than if you got it from Starbucks. Starbucks mm -hmm. serves it way too hot. but um, But so you only get, like, 20 minutes tops, um really less than that before your coffee gets too cold to really enjoy and there's this really sweet spot i don't know what temperature it is but uh where your coffee's 
not too hot and not too cold, and that's when the best flavor profile comes out. And you're just sipping it, and you're like, "Oh my goodness, this is so good!" Like, I I I could drink this all day. And then and then five minutes later, like the the, the temperature's gone down, and with it, the flavor changes. It changes throughout temperature, and there's a sweet spot. And so I was like, "Well, I would really am loving that that you know that five minutes or whatever where that temperature is perfect and the flavors are really coming through." Yeah. And I was like, I want to try and prolong that as long as possible. So I wound up getting, when well, my wife gave it to me for Valentine's Day, but it's a little co- Yeti coffee mug and it keeps my coffee warm for like 45 minutes. Wow. So I can just pour it in there and, um, and then, so that way I get to enjoy the, the flavor. Cause sometimes I'll, I won't even, that's sort of why I drink my coffee fast is because I want to get to enjoy the whole cup. Mm-hmm. Cause if I, and my wife's not this way, she'll, she'll just drink it the way she wants to. But then she'll have, you know, half a mug left of coffee and it's too cold for her to drink. And then, you know, and it's not even worth it. Don't put it in the microwave because <laughs> you're just taking it downhill from there. So we're talking about something completely different than just chugging a cup of coffee on your way to work. Yeah, yeah. This is not for fuel. No. This is not groggy first thing in the yeah, morning. Yeah. This is not four cups a day to keep you alive. Yeah. This is purely for the experience. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I had, um, I had, I guess I can sort of talk about why I got into coffee. Oh, um, yeah, please do. Because I was uh, in college, um, I had, I guess, three friends, maybe four friends that were into this thing called pour over, which is where you, um, where you grind your own coffee beans, uh, the fresher the better. Um, you grind your own coffee beans and you put them in a, in this it's basically a funnel uh and they the brand that they were using is a hario v60 which is a japanese sounds like a motorcycle yeah could be it should be (laughs) um so the hario was how they did it and i saw them you know make that and i would they would make some for me and all the coffee was always really good and i was really interested in the process because it was like it wasn't just throw your coffee in, turn the water on, and then leave it. It was like you really had to – there were several steps involved with the how the pour-over. There was using a special kettle called a gooseneck – hang on, not a gooseneck. Yes, a gooseneck kettle. Is that the one with the with the really long spout? The, sp- the spout comes from the bottom. Yeah. So you get okay. a really precise pour. Okay. And, um, precise and, as in temperature? Uh, temperature and um, – and directionality like you can really control where the uh where the coffee go or where the hot water goes because if you're using just a you know a regular tea kettle on the stove it you know it has that spout up at the top and it's like this big around and you pour it and it like kind of glugs out and all that yeah like they they weren't using that they were using this gooseneck and it has a very precise pour the water never gurgles it comes out in a perfect stream temperature stays the same so they're using all the special gear, pretty cool to watch. I never really did it myself because it was, you know, a little bit of a investment to get into all the gear. Um, but then for my wedding, one of my wedding presents, I got a couple pieces of gear. And then over the next, like, six months or so, I, 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 got, I got the gear. So you need, so for a pour-over, you need a gooseneck kettle, a Hario, uh, a scale, and a grinder. So I, I I bought a couple of things. I was given a couple of things with gifts, and then um, and then kind of let it sit around for almost a year. But then about 
a year into our marriage, Reagan and I started figuring, trying to figure this pour over thing over. And it took, it is until recently that I've figured out like the whole grinding process, how important that is. And I think I've talked to you a little bit about it. A little bit, not a whole lot. Yeah. I've kind of wanted to save it for, (laughs) for this, this podcast. So, yeah. So I feel like, I feel like we should have like a disclaimer here before we go any further, how long does this take a day? Because I feel like anybody listening who hasn't experienced this yeah. is going to be like, this is way too much effort. No. This takes too long. Yeah, it doesn't. Um, it's, uh, you can have a cup of coffee ready in 10 minutes. Even with this this process you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. all right, all right. Yeah, I mean, the process is um, is pretty quick. The, the hardest part is just figuring out... Uh, well, the hardest part for me, I, I really wasn't doing a whole lot of research. I was just uh, throwing coffee beans into my hand grinder and then grinding it at whatever setting the grinder happened to be at. Yeah. And then, like, a year later, I, f- I finally found out that there's a, an adjustment on the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> so I started adjusting it and then went way too loose and then went way too fine. And then I sort of had to – and it was, you know – and that was all my fault. I could have just asked somebody. Okay, uh, but I didn't. But anyways, um, so coffee, coffee was something. This the way they was th- this coffee was being made, which is a pour over. Uh, that was I saw this happen in college. Finally got into it myself, and um, it has really, it's been awesome because uh, especially during the spring and the summer, Reagan and Reagan, my wife and I, will. Um, we will make a cup of coffee for ourselves and then sit out on the front porch and have this, you know, we usually have this great discussion and it's always really wonderful. And um, we, and part of that wonderful experience is having that coffee. So, Mm -hmm. um, and also like once you start doing this, you start realizing how many different flavors coffee has um, and different coffees from different regions taste differently. And I'm definitely not an expert. I, I still can't, like, you read on the coffee bag, and it's, like, notes of citrus, and I can't taste any of that crap. Like, I just know, hey, this tastes really good. Like, I really like this. I don't know why, but it's yeah, good. Yeah, um, So I'm definitely not an expert, but... Uh, has it changed, though, some? Your, your uh, palate has expanded a little bit. Small. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I think the people that write the notes, the, the tasting notes, are full of crap, because I'm like, I do not taste burnt sugar uh-huh. in here at all. So. Uh-huh. But, you know, who knows? Maybe they're not full of crap. But You think uh, maybe they just pull stuff out of a hat? They could. <laughs> they really could because it's random. They're like, has taste of blueberry and cinnamon. And you're like, yeah. those two things do not go together. Uh-huh. But who knows? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so but one rule that I've made for myself with this is um, never get too snobby to turn down a cup of coffee. So, like... Uh, at church, you know, they make Folgers. Right. Um, and I I grab a mug of Folgers anytime I'm there. I mean, it's not... I try and get to the... I, know, I don't want to get to the point where I refuse a cup of coffee just because it's cheap or anything like that. I, I, I want to I make sure I'm, I'm not getting too spoiled here, you know? Especially if the, a big part of it's the community. Yeah. Like if the pleasure that you're getting out of this is yeah. talking with your wife or talking with a friend. Yeah, yeah. That, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Where do you get the coffee usually? Uh, local roastery here in town, uh, Madero. Um, yeah, they're a union 
I don't know if an affiliate is the right word, but they're part of Union University, and they do a great job. Um, I don't know if they they do the absolute best job um, in terms of roasting the coffee. I don't know anything about roasting coffee, so I'm yeah I'm totally speaking out of ignorance here. But let's hear it. Um, you know, I think there are people that are like there are certain roasteries in the world that they that's just they just devote their lives to figuring out the best coffee roastery uh, and Madero does a great job uh, but I, w- I was actually talking with Reagan and we were like well what if we bought I mean because a bag a bag of coffee here is 11 bucks and it's not uncommon for high-end roasteries to charge like 30 bucks yeah for just a little for the same for the same amount yeah 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 so who knows what they do to their coffee they probably say spells over it and stuff but <laughs> So I've thought about buying a bag of that and seeing like if there's a like a, a considerable taste difference, because uh, you can't just throw any coffee bean in a pour over and then it tastes good. Like the beans are play a huge part of that, and of that part I have no idea. Like, well, in order to really test it, you'd have to get beans from the same country. You'd yeah. have to get from the same That's kind of true. farm area. I didn't think about you'd want to make sure the flavors are as close yeah. as possible. Yeah, yeah, that'd probably be kind of hard that to find. Be hard to find an exact match. Yeah. Yeah. You have a favorite country? I do. Um, Tanzania is great, but they don't always have Tanzania. So if they don't have Tanzania, I'll go with Colombia. And Colombia, it's funny because, I mean, Colombia, they are the number one coffee exporter in the world. Um, and so they have these gigantic farms that just make a huge... People that... Uh, Folgers buys all their coffee from Colombia. So, like, okay. you know, it's this gigantic, huge range, but... Uh, on the you know they've got tons of coffee going out with like Folgers and Maxwell House and that sort of stuff and that's all from like Colombia, but then they also have these smaller farms, uh, they're called micro lots and uh, right. you can get good coffee from from Colombia as well and they Colombia is great for me because uh, it's got a really rich, bold, easy to understand flavor profile. Uh, you've got a lot of people that are like oh I love Ethiopia the best. Um, and that's fine, but Ethiopia has, has got more subtle flavor hints. Like, all the flavors are going to be much more subtle, um, harder to discern. I can't really tell. It just tastes really light to me, and I and I, I don't like having to think hard. I like to just drink it and think this is great, and Colombia does that for me. But I mean, t- those are the three you always hear. Yeah. You always hear Ethiopia. I guess Colombia, you yeah. hear about that. Yeah. Brazil, Brazil's I hear about Brazil a lot. Yeah. Sumatra. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Sumatra is actually the type of bean, not the the region. Okay. Is Sumatra a region? I mean, it, yeah, it's an island. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But they may have their own yeah, yeah. species of, yeah. be, of bean. I don't know. Yeah. I, I have no idea. Tanzania is neat because they have a, they have, uh, most of the beans that come from Tanzania are called pea beans. Okay. And they're much smaller, like half the size of a regular coffee bean. I have no idea why that is, but it's kind of like common from Tanzania beans. Um, I don't know what what that means, but they taste awesome. So (laughs) Tanzania is my favorite. (laughs) That's what counts, I guess. Yeah, I know. When did you get into mug making? Uh, This was my senior year of college. Um, I had always had a really special mug. Um from my grandmother uh-huh yeah uh, her grand or my grandmother had a mug she she did everything with it she'd put 
the bacon grease in it after she cooked bacon. She'd put orange juice in it and drink it. She'd put her coffee in it. It was really small, right? Yeah, it's really small. Like teacup size. Yeah, it was a teacup. And uh, it's just a simple, like, half-cylinder uh, mug with a, one finger. And But just seeing, I can just see, every time I use it, I can see her using it. And so, like, that was always really special. So I sort of had, like, this understanding of what makes a good mug, you know, going into it. But then I went to a ceramics class uh, my senior year, and uh, basically, well, that really wasn't a whole lot about mugs. Uh, I mean, Mr. Benson was the teacher, and he talked a lot about um, just having experiences, just with or without mu- mugs weren't like the common denominator there. Okay. But it was just having experiences and learning to make the most of your day and uh, and that sort of thing. And uh, so I learned a lot from that. Um, <clears throat> but I didn't really get picky and about my mugs until um, a year later when I was an intern under a... Um, I guess you call him professional potter here in town. And he taught me a lot about the importance of handles um, and how much they play into your experience with a mug. And um, Just the handle. Just the handle. Yeah, that's all I learned that whole summer. Wow. It was just how to – and I still am not great at it. Um, you know, that's like a lifetime type of thing to master. But, um, yeah, handles are, handles are really important. And so – having an understanding of handles and how much they play into it really uh, like stepped up my, my mug game. So, um, and, but it's not all about the handle either. Um, there's a, one of the three mugs that I use at home is one done by a guy named Jack Troy. Okay. Who's an old wood fire potter. And, um, he, I don't think he likes making mugs, man. I, I think he likes to make whiskey sippers and plates and that's it. Because, okay. like, when I went, I, I drove all the way up to Pennsylvania just to buy a mug. And it was, like, a 24-hour drive. And um, I finally get there and... Just to buy a mug just from, to buy, from this guy. That's all I wanted to do. Yeah, it was okay. just buy a mug. Uh, he has one sale a year okay. at his home. All right. He's got these, he's got two gigantic wood fire kilns. Uh, we get there and it had been raining all that. We drove all night. Um, and it, it was like a torrential rain the whole way. I mean, it was just the worst. I kept, uh, what's it called, fishtailing and, and hydroplaning and that sort of thing, and I was, like, bound and determined to get to Pennsylvania. Yeah. And the the thing about the sale is that I've heard that they open the doors at 7 a.m. for 30 minutes for people to walk around and not buy anything, and then they all shove them back outside until 8, and then at 8, they know what they're going to buy, and they sprint in. Wow. Just, Everything they can grab. Because this guy is like, I don't know how old he is. He's late 70s or eighty or early 80s. I don't know exactly how old he is. But uh, he's just a, a sort of a world-famous wood fire potter, very respected. I guess. When, where in Pennsylvania is this? No idea. Okay. Um, but you, but you got, got there. there. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> the problem is I got there uh, like four hours late. Okay. Because it had been raining. And we almost died several times. Okay. And... Um, and we got there late, and every all the stuff was gone, all the really the good stuff. They had some other stuff that wasn't wood-fired that he'd thrown. And uh, then there were, he also had some other potters that were doing the sale with him, and I wasn't interested in any of their stuff. Um, and so I was really bummed out. But then uh, they were packing the show up, packing the whole sale to take back up to his house. And I asked him, you know, does he need any help? Because I was like, I'm, I'm here in Pennsylvania. I might as well do something. 
stretch my legs a little bit. So I helped him pack up, and he was so appreciative that he invited us in for dinner. And uh, we had we went into his house, which was uh, just an amazing experience of its own. He had um, other world famous potters had given him stuff, just just filled his house from okay on a ceiling all over the walls, his table. I mean, it was all, it's just totally devoted to his craft, his kitchen. You walk into his kitchen and like all the way around are, he only has one thing on display and that's the old, like, um, you know, those big stoneware jugs that they would use for like, I'm sure a new, a, a number of different uses, but they had, they're really big, and they're usually stoneware with the blue yeah. slip drawings yeah. Yeah, on them, yeah, yeah. like little flowers and stuff, country crocs, basically. Uh-huh. That He is so appreciative to them because they're really what made American ceramics, like brought it into the whole the whole thing. Okay. And so he, was, he owes them, he feels like he owes them a lot. So that's he has those displayed all over his kitchen. And Anyways, end of story is he invited me into his studio, and... Um, I wound up getting to buy a couple of wood-fired mugs back there. and um, Where I was going with this is the handle sucks. It's really bad. Uh, you can't decide if you want to put one finger or two fingers in the little loop there. And you can tell. But, like, and the reason I'm saying all this is because it's not all... It's one of my favorite mugs because it was just a... You can... There's a sense of... Um, he really was having a sacred moment when he made that mug. Yeah. Um, he was so delighted to have his hands in the clay um, and make that, that form, and he knew exactly what he was doing every step of the way, and he he knew, like, like this isn't precious yet because it's just dirt, but one, but one day it will be precious. And, uh, and when, you start, when, you, when, you, when you start doing it enough and you start thinking about it, you're really able to sort of pick those those mugs out and that so that's the reason why that's that's one of my favorites do you think if do you think if someone who had not taken those classes drank from that same mug and then drank from like that one that we just looked at Mm -hmm. do you think they'd be able to tell a difference would they be able to say like there was a there was a sacred moment when this guy was making it yeah no way okay no way um just uh it just requires um, you just have to think about it, and there would be no reason for anybody to think about that. Right. Um, their sacred moments may be in hitting a really good golf, whatever. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And so, and that's an experience I would never get to have, you know. Right. Um, and I would never, and so like our experiences are different. Um, so like it requires um, a sense of. Uh, trying to, oh gosh, I don't really know how to put this into words. Um, but I guess, and this is funny that you mentioned that because one of my friends, his name is Ben Bredo, his whole senior show, uh, this is, this is pretty cool. He, he, he lined up, uh, 40 different wood-fired mugs. He did, I don't know if they were all wood-fired, but they're all handmade mugs that he had made. Mm-hmm. He put them just on this uh, big empty wall with just this one shelf, 40 of them lined up, <clears throat> all handmade. Um, and he, when everybody was coming in on the senior show, he was just randomly handing somebody a ticket. Um, and he had 40 tickets 
and he didn't tell anybody he was doing this. He just handed them a ticket, and then another few people would pass, and he'd hand another person a ticket. <clears throat> and then at the end, and so then they, you know, they had this senior show. They're talking about his art and all that stuff that that is not important. The important part is that he, at the end, he said, "Everybody that has a ticket, um, take a mug from." And he had like a bunch of Goodwill mugs that were just bought, you know, um, for sixty-two cents or whatever. You know, just very uh, mass-produced mugs. Uh, he said, anybody that's got a ticket, grab one of these mugs and then go up to any of these 40 mugs that I handmade and trade it. And so um, and so they were able to, whether they knew it or not, they were able to trade what America has put forward as a way to drink coffee and then taken you know, a real mug off the shelf. And then what's, So then when the show is over, what's left is just this row yeah. of mass-produced mugs wow. to say this okay. is what america wants and yeah. it's so like it was a sculptural did a, they look a, similar like how honestly i didn't get to go i wish okay. i'd been able to go so i don't know what it what the white ones looked like uh-huh i guess they my guess is they weren't all identical uh-huh. they were just you know varying shapes and sizes but you could tell all of them had just a handle stamped on and that's right thing. right uh, right so both both the before where you get to see all the handmade mugs and the after where you see all the mass-produced mugs, it's just a great... That's cool. Yeah, I wish I'd been able to go to that because it's pretty, uh, pretty, pretty smart. Yeah. So. Wow, what a way to get the effect across. Yeah, I know. It's really cool. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it. Uh, I wouldn't have gotten, you know, I wouldn't have been able to tell, you know, that, I, that this mug had, had been made with a sort of a sense of, sincerity about it um before i had really started to think about what is this moment why am i having this moment why is it good and that sort of stuff so so you started ceramics not mugs in particular just ceramics ceramics. how'd you get there because you were biology right yeah so i majored in biology but my wife was art uh my girlfriend at the time who's now my wife was doing art and she had taken a ceramics class and thought I'd fit in really well, so I signed up for a like a audit or whatever. And, and took it, it changed your life. Yeah, I mean, in some <laughs> ways it did. Yeah, other ways it didn't. Yeah, um, but in some ways it did, definitely did. So yeah, um, yeah. So walk me through the process of of just any any ceramics thing. So yeah. you start with clay. Yeah. Uh, so. The first step is finding yourself some clay. Um, you know, back in the day, they would dig it and then process it. Okay. Uh, and I've done that, and it's actually it's actually pretty fun to do it like that. Cause, How do they process it? Um, well, usually when it comes out of the ground, it's it's usually too dry. Okay. To throw, you can't throw anything with it, so you have to break it up into small pieces and then add water. Um, and then it depends on how crazy you want to get with it. Like the, the Japanese and the Chinese, they have this stuff called bone porcelain. That's the most, that's the purest of the pure. I mean, it's okay. in relationships to stoneware, the size of that, the molecules, I think, have I told you this? I don't think so. Stoneware, if you look at the molecules, one molecule would be like the size of a basketball. And then, let me make sure I get this right. The porcelain, the molecules are like the size of, um, like a uh, like a pin, you know, like the um like a pinhead. Are you serious? Yeah. Like it's though that's how that's how coarse stoneware is in relation to porcelain. Wow. Yeah. 
Okay. So, or it's like it's like the tip of a sharpened pencil, or like there's something crazy. I mean, it's like crazy huge compared to a, a basketball. Basketball, yeah. Wow. So, and that and that only comes from you have. And I, I watched a short little documentary thing about this, but like they dig it out of the ground. It's out of caves. They're like chipping this stuff out, and they are transporting it, and they put it in this uh, like this flowing river. And then they uh, they just dump it all in there, and then eventually it all breaks apart into this sediment stuff, and then they dig it back out in this like mud clay form, and then they lay it out to dry, and then they throw it back in there, and it's just like over and over, like refining it and refining it, mm-hmm. refining it, mm-hmm. um, like like five times, like five crazy times, and then and then you get to like throw with it or do whatever it is you're doing with it. Um, but it, so it depends on how crazy you can go that far, or you can just sort of process it enough to where, you know, sometimes you have to add certain things to it that will make it fire up to temperature. Um, so how have you processed yours? I just threw water in it. <laughs> okay, so you throw water in <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, threw water in it. Well, first you have to break it because you get them in the chunks or like you know, as big as your hand or bigger or whatever. But you yeah. have to break that up. Okay. So I sat there and I like broke it into as small pieces as I could. Um, with my hands, and then just soaked it in water. Um, so you're trying to make it all the same consistency? Yeah, you're trying to make it similar consistencies, or as close as you can. Yeah. Um, and I was really lucky. The porcelain that I pulled out of the ground was, I mean, it fired right up to cone 10. Um, we'll have to talk about that later, yeah, too. Cause cone 10, it. that's... that's <laughs> yeah, that's... We're not ready for cone yeah. 10 yet. <laughs> so, at any rate, um, so you get the clay... Uh, you get it to where it's it's sort of the consistency is a little bit um, harder than Play-Doh. Okay. Um, so you can still sort of, it's malleable and move it around a little bit. Um, and then you you put it on the wheel head. I, I guess if you're not throwing, you would just make your sculptures or whatever with it. How long did the processing take uh, before you put it on the wheel head? Uh, you, a week or so. A week? Well, yeah, because you have to let once you once you break all the clay up, then you have to stir it and get the clay down at the bottom, and then you have the whole thing has to become wet, and then you have to lay. You want to get it really wet, so then you lay it out on this plaster slab, and then once you lay it out on the plaster slab, it dries for a day or two, and you have to turn it over, and then once it's a good consistency, you wedge it all together. Uh, which, I didn't realize it took that long. Yeah. This Most is of, this yeah. is before you even shape it. Yeah, it takes a week. Yeah. just to get ready for the shaping. Minimum. Wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, uh, a lot of people don't do any of that. Uh huh. Which is fair enough. Okay. You only got two hands. You might as well save them for the important <laughs> thing, I guess. But uh, yeah, so it takes a while. Um, but once you get it to the right consistency, you either a do all that beforehand, or you can just buy yourself a bags of clay are super cheap like i don't even know 15 bucks already processed yeah and it's like 25 or 50 pounds of clay but you had to do it yourself i've done both yeah um so um yeah so then you just throw it on the wheel and then you and then learning how to throw is a whole nother conversation um once you throw your form uh if you're gonna put a handle on it like if you throw in a mug you have to let that set up so you have to let that dry you can it can dry slowly like if you cover it with a plastic bag you can leave it for a week and then come back to it and it'll be fine um or you can set it out in like the sun and then it'll be ready to it'll the clay is it's called getting set up it's, it's set up now set up enough to attach a handle 
and you, if you set it out in the sun, it'll be ready in a couple hours. Um, and you, it, basically, it's just the moisture, the excess moisture is coming out of the clay, and it's hardening. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a stage called leather hard, which is a lot of potters, it's like that's their favorite stage. Um, okay. Leather hard is when the color of the clay is all consistent, and it's cool to the touch, and you can pick it up, and it doesn't malform or anything like that. But it, it's just a really wonderful experience that, um, and it has a certain look that that no glaze can ever have. There have been potters that have devoted whole years trying to develop a glaze that looks leather hard, mm-hmm. like, um, and then it, it just does, never never works. Okay. Um, so there's this leather hard stage, which is great. You attach the handle, or you you know do whatever with it that you're going to do at that point, and then you just let it harden till it's called bone dry. And when it's bone dry, there's um, there's only minimal amounts of moisture in it. Uh, you don't, you can't feel the moisture. It's all out um, in its like H2O form or whatever. It's all out like in water form, and it's very brittle. And so you you carefully take it and you bisque it. Um, bisking is going to remove all the ex- extra water. It's gonna, it actually has to like take this basically all the steam out, and you. It's just like this uh, chemical thing that happens and all the water leaves and it's much more hardy than you can take it and the reason you do that is because it's so dry that it's looking for any moisture to it it sucks moisture in like a sponge and that's that's why you do that so you can glaze the pot so so that the glaze sticks to the pot because all that water is gonna go into the into the bisqueware and then leave the the glaze like all the all the coloring components and that sort of stuff on the on the pot. So and this is all before you put it in the fire. Yeah. Right? So this is all in preparation yeah, for that. Yeah. Okay. So and then once you biscuit and then you glaze it, you put it in the in the kiln and fire the kiln up. They've got different clays. Some clays will fire will finish firing at like I don't know, a thousand degrees. They're, the reason the reason I said cone tin earlier is because they have different temperatures. Uh, related to, and they the the way they say it is with cone. So cone one is like a lower temperature than cone ten. Uh, so you've got glazes and and clays that set up at cone one, and then you've got high fire, which is like cone ten, stuff like that. So hmm. though that cone ten is, I think it's twenty eight hundred degrees, which is really hot. That's really like hot. your oven gets to five hundred max. So m- multiply that times a lot six or something five ten fifteen twenty five or six what were you saying last time we were talking about this you said something about the surface of the sun what was it did you talk about this no i don't remember talking let me about look it this. up real quick what is the, surf- the temperature of the surface of the sun i think it's considerably hotter than a kiln but i don't know well once you get up into the thousands of degrees oh my gosh what does uh, kelvin mean In Fahrenheit. Huh. 9,000. Almost 10,000 degrees. Yeah. And what's cone 10? 28. 28. Not yeah. quite there. No. Maybe almost a third of the way. Yeah, but it's really hot. That's pretty hot. Yeah. I mean, the kiln, uh, there's several ways to fire, but my favorite way is wood firing. And wood firing, you have to open a door uh, to stoke it, or you just you just chunk wood in. Um, and... Uh, when you open that door, it's only, you know, two feet by two feet door. But you but fire like pours out of it 
like mm-hmm. comes and then and it just goes way up like 15 feet high and it's so hot you have to stand 25 feet back or your or your your face will crisp up yeah i've been out there when you guys have been firing before and if you're standing far away so you're not like right there by the door you yeah. can see the chimney yeah. of the building yeah and the fire is spewing out from the chimney yeah, yeah it's pretty it's like that's intense. the brightest thing around yeah. is the fire coming straight out from yeah. the top of the chimney. Yeah, it goes the fire will go all the way through the kiln, all the way up the forty foot chimney and then up another fifteen feet in the air. It's crazy. You can't fire a wood kiln if it hasn't rained in a while. There's been times that we've had to cancel the firing because it's because it's too dry. We're afraid it will just not even just the heat from it will catch catch stuff on fire. And so, you you stay out there all night, is that the idea? Yeah, so you stay you can um most of the time it's it's fired with groups uh and the groups will have they'll it'll be a 24/7 operation mm-hmm. um almost minimum you have to fire it for 3 days uh and and the reason you have to do that is because you your goal is to get enough ash on the pots the ash becomes a glaze and if you don't oh. have enough wood to make ash then the ash doesn't accumulate on the pots uh-huh um so if you and you really have to do it for a minimum of like three days, um, but then there but there have been people that have done like week long firings. There's crazy um, kilns called anagamas, which um, or there's actually a bigger one called the no, nor Borgama or something like that um, that has got multiple chambers where you start at the t- front and you fire the front chamber for like three days and you move to the second chamber and fire that for three days Wow! and then move to the third one and then like every one of those chambers is going to have a different result because you're going to get a little less ash and all that kind of good stuff um but yeah week-long firings are not uncommon how long have you done it uh the most we did it was for four days four days yeah so and it's it gets it gets tough, especially if you don't have a lot of help. One, so you got you got to have somebody to open the door. Yeah, to help you it's while like you throw the wood job. in. Yeah, yeah. and but then they also have they, you can also do it by yourself. Um, there's been I knew a guy or I knew a guy on social media that did a, a solo firing is what they call it. Okay, and you know you have to have like you have to have a better door system than we do, where you can like our door was on like a pull. You have to pull like one side and then it opens the door but then there's other it lifts kilns. up that's yeah. the idea okay yeah so but some of them you can you it's got like a handle and 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 um like tracks and you can move it left to right and so you can do that by yourself mm-hmm. <clears throat> and um the problem with it is like you'll fire it all day and then but you have to sleep at some point so you'll like stoke it really hot and then you'll 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 plug up all the holes and you'll try and sleep for, like four or five hours and then you come back, and the temperature's fallen like a lot. And then you have to get the temperature back up to whatever temperature you need. It what to do be. you have to keep it at? Uh, the answer is cone eight. I don't know what temperature that is, though. Um, you want to keep it around cone eight. What's cone one? Cone what would one. That be? Or like a lower cone. Uh, like what would a really low heat be? Hang on, I know the answer to this. So. Because cone 10 was almost 3,000 degrees. Yeah. Well, cone 1 through 10 are not, those those numbers are not sequential. Like, oh, okay. Like cones 1 through 7 is like, uh, is like not that big of a difference. And then cone 7 through 10, like cone 7 is like 2,200 or something like that. So cone 8 is still 
pretty high up there. Then. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Cone eight's high. It's in the thousands, I think. And you got to keep it around cone eight. Is that the idea? Yeah, I think the reason you do that, and again, I'm not the really the best per. I'm not the person to talk to about this, but uh, if you keep around cone eight, um, your your wood ash is is getting deposited. You know, it's getting it's so hot that it'll that wood ash will um, flow onto the pots. Um, and yeah, and basically what you do is you keep it at cone eight or something around that temperature for three days. And then for the last 12 hours of the firing, you'll, you'll, um, you'll bump it up to cone 10. And then the reason you do that is so that all that ash that's gotten deposited onto the pots gets melted and then hardens and becomes a clay or becomes a glaze. So, so you go from, you go from, a week of processing to days in the kiln. So we're talking like potentially two weeks for the whole thing. Yeah. More than that. More than you, that? Yeah, because you, you got to account for drying the clay. and How long does that take? Um, I mean, like it can take a short amount of time, um, but it takes at least a day to load the kiln, if not two days. So, yeah, I mean, you can only, you know... Firing a wood kiln, especially, is a it's like a once a year type of thing for, uh, for probably st- for students at least. Yeah. If you're yeah. a professional potter and you make pots all day, you might can get three kilns in a day or three kilns in a year. Uh, but it's really hard to do any more than that because your your wood kilns are really big, so you have to put a lot of work in. Like our kiln at Union here should hold up to like eight hundred to a thousand pieces. Wow. Uh, so you got to throw all that, yeah. and then you got to bisque all that, and then you got to glaze all that, um, and then you got to load all that, and then you got to fire all that. <laughs> I guess I just hadn't put two and two together that the process took that long. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you got a, a handmade mug in your hands. That's like half a month of work. Yeah. Yeah. And that's 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 hard. It's it's hard because you have to you have to balance all that. You have to think. Okay. You know, am I making enough money on this? to survive as a as a person making money on pots um so like you there's a couple ways you can go with professional pottery like you can go where you're spending a lot of time on the preparation of the pot like um a guy named andrew clark that i know uh eric botbull is another one and they spend a lot of time um painting the pot they do um they throw the pot and then they do a lot of alterations um after it's been thrown like adding a lot of texture adding a lot of um uh, patterns and things like that and they spend a lot an, an exorbitant amount of time on that but then once you've used all that time you can't really you don't really have enough time to wood fire to make it worth your time so you so a lot of times wood fire potters will have more simple forms mm-hmm less you know figgly wiggly stuff um which is sort of why i like another reason i like wood fire pottery is because it's not trying to be too much you know and you you kind of loot you kind of you leave it up to tried and true which is fire wood air it always works and i and i so anyways um yeah so you kind of have you can't really you kind of almost have to choose one or the other when you're because then it would just get too. You'd be. It'd be like your your mugs would be like two hundred dollars. Um, so, 
Uh, well, a we good got quality. this one here for 130. Yeah, and that's you shouldn't pay that much for that. <laughs> <laughs> What's the brand? Uh, Pottery Barn. Amsterdam Printing. Huh. They printed a no. mug. Is that really? Oh, that's not the 130 dollar one. Is it? I think it was a different one. Anyways. Yeah, but you're saving $3,000. Yeah, if you buy $10,000. <laughs> yeah, so... Anyways, I, and all this is not for everybody. Yeah. You know, like, not everybody can appreciate coffee the way I do, and I don't expect everybody to, and not because not everybody can appreciate music the way you do, and you shouldn't expect them to. So, like, this is just happens to be the way I get a lot of satisfaction. Um, and... So, yeah, I mean, I don't really get, you know, some, I think some potters will sort of get this thing where they'll kind of get upset whenever they see somebody drinking out of a styrofoam cup. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, I mean, that's their choice. You know, they can do that if they want. And I don't, I don't blame anybody for doing that. I just won't do it. Right. Um, So let's say, let's say someone just wants to amp up their coffee game just a little bit. Okay. They want to just get started enjoying coffee more. Yeah. Where would you start? Well, I guess this is a conversation you and I could have because you've mentioned to me how you're interested in getting in coffee. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking about myself here. Yeah. Like, how yeah. would I get... I mean, for the first thing for me is I just got to start drinking coffee, period, yeah. because yeah. I'm, I'm going from not a coffee drinker That's at all. That's true, man. So... You'll be... Start, it'll be hard. It might be... It might be hard because you've never tasted bad coffee. Like, explicit, you know... Yeah, you, so you'll that's be true. Going, that's like, true. I don't decide, know what Folgers tastes like, yeah. or I don't know if Folgers is bad, yeah. maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I think um, I think if you if you're gonna if you want if the first thing you want to do if you're wanting to um, have a better coffee experience because coffee can be really be a great experience. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it can be something that you sort of center your day around almost, um, and or at least to, make your day better. Yeah, at minimum. Yeah, it's something to look forward to, and. Um, you know, it serves multi- multiple purposes, but um, there's I would I would do is what I, what I would do is find yourself a a, a brewing method. Um, I mean, I get, but you're really into research. I mean, you you do that all the time. So one thing you might could do is uh, something that you that might be a little better suited for you would be to like research how coffee coffees are like produced and made and then kind of figure out what you know what kind of what kind of production way you like best and then sort yeah. of move into it that way because you're less of an experienced person than I am you 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 do a lot of research and that's sort of um interesting to you I'm not as interested about it in in the research aspect of coffee but um at least for me um you know having the experience of warming the coffee or warming the water and then grinding the coffee and then weighing the coffee out all that sort of flows into the whole experience Mm -hmm. and um so for me i really like doing a a hario pour over um i've talked to you about an aero press yeah i was going to ask you about that yeah so the aero press is um similar in some ways in that you you need um a more specific amount of coffee than like just a tablespoon or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, but it's less so. 
Um, what you do with an AeroPress is you basically you, you find yourself a coffee mug, you find yourself an AeroPress, which is basically um, it looks like a tube with like a, a hat on the like an up like it looks like a top hat. It's like a wide base, so you can put it on top of your so it sets on your coffee mug, mm-hmm. and then up from the wide hat you've got like that tube. Uh, it's like a plastic tube, and at the bottom of that tube you place a, a filter, um, which is like a little round disc at the bottom of it, and then you put your grounds in. And with AeroPress, I have a friend that does it, and he and the AeroPress has got this special like tool that comes with it, and it's got a little spoon on the end of it, and you can just what he does instead of um, weighing it out is he he just fills that with fills that little spoon with coffee grounds pours the coffee grounds in the tube, pours the hot water over the coffee grounds, and you let it sit for five minutes. And what you do is you take a plunger, kind of like a, like a, um, what do you call the thing, syringes? I guess so. Yeah, so you push it down, and the coffee gets, uh, and the hot water in the the coffee basically gets brewed as you're pushing it down. Well, it's brewing while it's sitting there for five minutes, and then you just basically push the water through the filter, which is the coffee now. In your mug. So we're talking still about a 10-minute process. Yeah. Ab- about. Yeah. Um, and that makes a great cup of coffee. Um, my friend made one for me, and it was delicious. Uh, yeah. And, that, and the reason I like that is because with the pour-over, you it requires, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, like seven or eight pieces of equipment just to make your cup of coffee. But with the AeroPress, it's like three. It's like your AeroPress, your mug, your filter, and your water, so four, hmm. instead of eight, which is nice. Um, it takes the it takes the uh, the scale out of the way, um, and that's helpful. Uh, so yeah. So anyways, uh, AeroPress is great. Um, pretty. Popular. I think the thing about it for me is just. If I'm going to get into this, I want to do it right. Yeah. You know, if I'm going to do it, I want to get the most out of the experience that I yeah. possibly can. So what are the health well, benefits of coffee since that's what you've been looking at? Yeah. Who well, have you been emailing? I've been emailing the, the director of, of Modero and Barefoot. Oh, no way. Yeah, yeah. Just trying to learn more about their process okay. of where they get their coffee. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I mean, it's pretty wow. good coffee, apparently. Yeah. Um, we're talking like, According to her, like top five percent in the world. Um, top five percent of coffee uh, just, growers. Yeah, just the, I guess the, the production standards wow. or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, I don't want to speak for them because yeah. it's only you know just what I've heard from talking to, right. to her. So, um, I mean, there's there's pretty solid research out there that coffee drinkers on average live longer than non-coffee drinkers. Wow. There's a lower risk of of cancer, heart disease, a okay. lot of this stuff that happens later in life. Wow. Nothing that would affect me right now. I yeah. mean, you and I are both young. Yeah. So it's not like, you know, if I don't drink coffee, I'm going to die in 10 years or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. But, but on average, huh. it seems like regular coffee drinkers live longer on average. Okay. Um, and I, it's, it's hard to know... And we've talked about this some with with other things like pipe smoking. Yeah, it's hard to know how much of it is because you actually slowed down enough to enjoy an experience. Yeah, and how much of it is the ingredients okay. in the coffee. Okay, 
So that's what I'm still trying to figure out at this point. Like, is it the caffeine itself? Mm -hmm. So would green tea have the same effect? Yeah. Um, Or is it just the fact that you kept yourself from stress for 20 minutes a day? I don't know. I would say uh, my thought on that is probably not because the majority of coffee drinkers are probably, I think, just do it to get up in the morning. Yeah. Or to feel rich and go to Starbucks, you Mm -hmm. know. Um, So I would say, I mean, people that drink coffee for an experience are definitely in the minority. So if you're looking at numbers nationwide polls that are just in coffee generals, drinkers in general, I would say it's not because they're slowing down. I don't think that would be the relationship. I don't know what the relationship would be, but it seems like, you know, most of the time you're throwing it in a Keurig, which takes like 45 seconds, and then you're just, you're, you know, out of the, out the door or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Have you heard of the Blue Zones? No. Have you heard of this before? Mm-mm. Okay, so there's this guy who, who, who put out a book about what he called the Blue Zones. Okay. And they're the places in the world where people on average live longest. Wow. And he looked at their lifestyles, like, what do they do that okay. other countries don't okay. do? Wow, wow, wow. Um, one of them was Japan. Um, I think one of them was, like, Switzerland. I don't remember what the others were. Okay. Um, were we a blue zone? I don't think so. No, Maybe we were. Probably not. I don't, I don't know. I haven't read the book yet. I've just I've okay. looked at the article talking wow. about it. So um, this is still an ongoing, like, process of trying to figure all this stuff out. Okay. But I remembered seeing in that article that, that, that caffeine was a consistent factor. Mm. So like tea drinking, yeah. it wasn't always coffee. Yeah, yeah. But... Yeah, I mean, um, in Japan, you want to talk about a tradition. Like, their tea ceremony is, like, older than the sun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... <laughs> like, I mean... And their kilns are hotter than the sun, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, they are. They get pretty freaking hot. Um but yeah, so Japan, like that's a whole, that's a, that's a, I don't know a whole lot about it. Yeah. Um, but there, there were potters that, um, like I know some potters, like student potters that will try and throw tea, teapots, like for the Japanese tea ceremony. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's just the height of, I don't even know. It's just ridiculous because, I mean, you're a, you know, a suburban white male in America trying to throw this thing that's been around for thousands of years. I mean, it, it, anyway. Well, that's how I feel about people who do yoga. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, like wow. My wife and I have talked about that. Wow. Some. Like there's, that's so true. there's a side. Now I'm, I'm speaking not as a yoga person. Yeah, like exactly. I don't actually practice yoga. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have experience in martial arts, so we could talk about that, right. which I could also say the same about martial arts, yeah. but there's a, there's a dimension to, the history and tradition that if you if you reduce it to just an exercise, wow. you're missing so much. Wow, I feel like, man. Um, yeah. And again, martial arts is the same way. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, the the whole Japanese that would be a good place to like visit for six months or something. You know, you you personal friends with a guy that's been over there for a couple of years. I wonder if I wonder if he garnered experiences from Japan that like have impacted how he lives today. I don't know. That'd be a cool thing. Yeah, you should ask him. Yeah. Maybe we should have him on the podcast or something. Oh, that would be fun. That'd be cool. Because I, you know, Japan, they, I'm sure not every Japanese person is like this, but at at the core of Japan's, you know, culture is like this, um, 
they they honor the past so much, which is something mm-hmm. that I've grown up doing, you know, with my family and being on land that has been in the family for generations. And so, like, I have a small um, appreciation for it, you know, just based on my family's history. But that's something I, I'm super interested in because I know that there's families of potters that um, they, like, for the like the last, I don't know, I think the number was like the last thousand years, they've glazed every single one of their pots with the same glaze. It's yellow. And it's like, it's the only yellow that they're allowed to use. Like, it's just, and they and they do it not because they're, they feel jailed into it, but it's because they want to honor their their past, you know, fathers or whoever it is that was doing it and, and yeah. trying to make their best pots with that same glaze or whatever, so... Yeah, I would love to know about all that. It's just a completely different way of looking at the world. Yeah, yeah. But I think, but I I, I don't want to look at it with too much of a rose-colored glasses either. Right. Because, you know, Japan is becoming westernized as well, and so I, I think they're losing some Well, of and, that you know, the tradition had to start somewhere. Yeah. I mean, someone had to get the ball rolling. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. All this could, yeah, all this could be um, the same things that you could talk about with ceramics and coffee and the tea ceremony. You could talk about it with pipe smoking and whiskey drinking and all those types of things as well. Well, I definitely want to talk about martial arts at some point because I oh, keep yeah. thinking of, like, while you're talking just wow. about tradition, the tradition and stuff, Yeah, so much of that overlaps with martial arts. Yeah. So that may be better saved for another podcast. I don't know, but... But yeah, I don't know what time we got here, but but there's there's a respect for tradition on one hand in martial arts, but then there's also at least here in the West there's the exercise feature. Okay. So where did you grow up in it? More on the traditional side. Okay. So right now in America, at least I don't know how it is in other countries, but right now the coolest martial art is jujitsu, Brazilian jujitsu. Okay. It is seen as kind of like the best, okay. the top martial art. I've heard people talk about it as yeah. like the gold standard. Yeah, so it is right now. Is it I, true? It used to not be that way. Yeah. It is if, depending on what metric you're kind of looking at. Okay. And and this is why it kind of annoys me when people talk about jujitsu as being the best. Okay. Is because you're only looking at one side of it. Okay. So if What's... you're talking about for exercise... It's incredible. Okay. If you're talking about for practical self-defense, yeah, it's incredible. Okay. It's really good. Okay. Um, if you're talking about about a lifestyle and and a complete reframing of how you look at the world, mm-hmm. I would go with something more like Aikido. Okay. And that's kind of weird because. A lot of people think that Aikido is kind of not really cool anymore. Right. Because Aikido, um, that's one of the ones that I grew up doing. Mm-hmm. And the thing about Aikido is it was it was designed during the time when people were on horseback. So it was kind of a, a last resort. If you get knocked off your horse, mm-hmm. everyone else is still on horseback. How do you stay alive in the battle? Okay, wow. It's Aikido stuff. So it uses your opponent's momentum a lot. Yeah. So you got someone charging at you. The idea is to be able to, you know not only stay alive, but take out your opponents in the process. Okay, could you um, do that? 
Well, I don't know. I've never been charged <laughs> yeah, by someone true, on horseback true, before, so I don't know. <laughs> um, wow. So it would be really easy for someone to look at that and say, well, that doesn't apply. Okay. You know, in a time when everyone just uses, you know, knives or guns, no one's on a horse. Okay. You know, what are you going to do against a moving car? Okay. Um, so so your your thought is that Brazilian jiu-jitsu lacks the tradition aspect that Aikido does? I think I think that I don't think it has to be that way, but I think it has I think for a lot of people it's become that way. Okay. I'm not saying that every oh, yeah. Br- Brazilian jiu-jitsu person doesn't, you know, respect the traditions I of see. martial arts. But it's so popular. It's it's so much more sparring focused. Okay. And tactical based. Um, I grew up doing a lot of forms, which are just series of moves one after another. Okay. And, and there's, there's a depth to that that I haven't seen yet in some of the things like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or like mixed martial arts or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Um, you have to, you have to force yourself to ask like, why do these particular moves go together? Okay. And you have to do them exactly the same way you know, time after time. Okay. And, you know, you're not tested on how long it takes you to knock somebody out. You're tested on how well you know this set of moves that has not been changed for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Wow. So you're like, you're putting yourself in that line of tradition. Okay. Um, All right. So is is there a value difference between the two to you personally? Well, I think the best would probably be a balance of both, I would think. Okay. I mean, ideally, one should lead into the other, right? Yeah. I mean, it would be kind of a... Kind of like an... Almost like an order-chaos relationship. Like yeah. one would kind of lead into the other. Okay. You would have... You would have a lot of tactical defense that you get from the sparring element but ideally that should fuel your your desire to get more into the past and see what okay. other people have done and where it came from yeah and then the more you study those uh-huh. old grandmasters okay that should fuel you then to get better at what at you're doing, what now. You're doing and now yeah so okay i guess my question was more traditional and i like i'm talking from a total not like zero knowledge about any of this, but sure. Like is the, is, um, the Brazilian jujitsu, does that, I mean, Brazil has not been around long, as long as Japan has. So like do the traditional or did Brazilian jujitsu, is that from Brazil? I'm well, guessing. I sus- I don't know. I suspect the martial arts is probably older in Japan, but I don't yeah. know that for sure. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I wonder, like... I haven't studied Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Yeah, on, yeah. I mean, I've attended a few classes, but... Uh, oh, really? Yeah, it's... Cool. I'm not, I'm not ranked in that or anything, yeah. so... Yeah. It uses a lot of takedowns. Um, those are the ones where you're, like, you end up on the mat, mm-hmm. and you've got them in the headlocks and stuff like that. Okay. That's, that's more on the jiu-jitsu yeah. side. Yeah, Aikido is more flips and throws. Um, so... Aikido would be, you know, someone is, someone's coming at you and you send them flying across the room. Yeah. Jiu-jitsu would be someone's coming at you and you end up tangled up with them on the yeah. ground and you've got them in a headlock. Yeah. That would be the difference. So, 
And if then I, there's the pressure yeah. point side, which is yeah. completely different. I mean, that's a whole other element, yeah. the pressure points, yeah. knocking people out and stuff like keto? that. No, not so much. Um, I was able to incorporate it a little bit because the two martial arts that I had growing up were Aikido and then Kenpo, which is Japanese karate. Okay. Um, both of them are from Japan. They're yeah. both from that same area. Okay. Um, it, was, it was really easy to be able to integrate the pressure points because if you have to send somebody flying, you can just a little, yeah. a little extra, you know, <laughs> nudge to get them in that direction helps a lot. So, I always um, wonder. Now, I've never heard you, you. You and I have talked about martial arts before, but I've never, we've never talked about the, the whole aspect of where it came from and where it originated and that sort of stuff. And I, that that draws me a lot more than the whole self defense part. Mm-hmm. Um, the tradition side yeah so i'm yeah. more interested like i wonder like if i i wonder if what kind of experiences i could have with a in a martial arts class it's hard it's hard to imagine in america because our country's only what a few hundred years old yeah um it's hard to imagine what it means for a tradition to last that long yeah. you know without thousands of years yeah um I mean, we have that still with, with I guess religion. Yeah. But even then, it's changed so much. Yeah. Like the way the way church works now is so different from yeah. the way that it worked. A hundred um, years ago. Yeah, during the time of, I don't know, King David. Right. So. Yeah, I was even just thinking from the time America was born. Yeah. Well, even I mean, yeah, even that's a huge two hundred and fifty years or whatever, or less. So it's yeah. Um. I wonder, like, I wonder, like, 200, that's enough time to shake off your infancy, surely. You would think we would, we could sort of start moving and sort of have our own definition of who we are as a country, and I feel like, to a large extent, we don't really have that. I think we're going through our teenage years. You think so? I think so, because that's, I mean, we're acting like a teenager right now as a country. (laughs) I mean... We have moments where we act super mature, yeah. and then we have moments when we act super immature, immature. Yeah. and we're trying to figure out who we are. Yeah. So it's kind of like we're, I don't know, off to college right. or starting yeah. vocational school or yeah. something. Yeah, huh. That's a good way to think about it, because I have a pretty pessimistic view. Yeah. Um, which we don't have to get into. <laughs> another um, day, another podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll talk about politics next time. Yeah, I know nothing about politics. I try and I really need to know more about it, um, but I just I can't handle it right now. I gave myself a year, uh, twenty eighteen. Yeah, my New Year's resolution yeah. for twenty eighteen was to was to learn about politics. Yeah, and so I read so I read so much about the news, and in a year's time, I think really all I've come away with was just how complicated it is. Yeah, I was going to ask you where do you even start? Yeah, it's there's just there's so much to it. Wow, and there's so much. There's so much just deception. It's yeah. hard to weed through what's objective and what's not. Yeah, yeah. So, um, is it so, is this, is that something you're going to do in 2019 as well? I think I'll I think I'll keep it up. I'm not going to be as intentional about it. Okay. Um, you know, it's kind of like if you're training for a marathon. Yeah. You know, you're still going to run just because now it's a part of you, but yeah. you may not do it as right. as intentionally. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Well. Good talk. Good talk, man.